Welcome to another episode of the Vets and Ag Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the first episode in a three-part series sponsored by Farmer Veteran Coalition, or FVC, a national nonprofit organization mobilizing veterans to feed America and transition from military service to careers in agriculture. This series showcases partnerships between FVC and organizations offering programs in agriculture tailored specifically for military veterans. We will interview stakeholders within the organization, as well as a military veteran who participated in its programs. This week, our guests are Curtis Menken, an extension economist with the Center for Farm Financial Management, CFFM, at the University of Minnesota, and Eric Zerbes, a Marine Corps veteran, fifth generation farmer, and owner operator at Zerbes Family Farm in Melrose, Minnesota. Both grew up on dairy farms, and can recall the pain of waking up in the middle of the night to milk cows. At certain points in their adolescence, both also realized they needed to do something different for a while. Curtis went on to college, where his passion for agriculture focused on helping farmers achieve their dreams through a better understanding of their financials. Eric joined the Marine Corps for four years before coming back to the family farm and transitioning it into beef production. Their paths now crossed, with Farmer Veteran Coalition. Curtis is working in partnership with FVC to provide virtual farm business management classes to military veterans. And Eric is marketing his beef through FVC's Homegrown by Heroes branding program. In this episode, we cover everything from transitioning farm records from pen and paper to digital, to how to find niche markets for products based on market trends and your own personal passions. Enjoy. I actually come from a dairy farm in the southern part of Illinois, not too far from St. Louis. Um, And that's really where my passion for agriculture really began. Um, You know, being down in the dairy, uh, milking cows with dad and with grandpa, with grandma, with mom, with all of my siblings. And then, you know, learning those life lessons. Um, Some of the most vivid memories for me are you know, corn harvest, uh, corn silage harvest season in particular, um, being out there with, with grandpa, um, and we're chopping corn while, while dad's running wagons and things like that. So, you know, there's, there's just so many lessons that I took, uh, from all of that. From there, I, I did my undergraduate work at SIU Carbondale, Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Um, again, kind of moving into, um, wanting to help producers. Originally, I wanted to actually go back and be a farmer, but I realized uh, somewhere in my senior year of college that where my talents actually lay were with helping producers um, just be able to achieve their dreams through their financials uh, and things like that. So for from there, I went on, I got my my master's degree from Michigan State University. Um, And then from there, I went on to work for the University of Kentucky in the Kentucky Farm Business Management Program, where I worked directly with 
farmer cooperators doing this same type of work, um, doing uh, specifically working on farm management issues, financial statements, um, even getting into some tax planning and things like that. While I didn't necessarily prepare any of the taxes, I worked closely with them and able uh, to to actually work on the tax planning um, to figure out, okay, well, how much did we make this year? Um, do we need to be doing some tax planning? Um, and then, like I said, from there, I actually uh, came up to the University of Minnesota in 2010, where my first project, I actually did not work directly with uh, producers, uh, agricultural producers necessarily. We had a program called the Trade Adjustment Assistance for farmers program where we were helping um, producers of affected commodities and products uh, adjust to import competition. So I was working with asparagus growers uh, nationwide. I was working with uh, wild blueberry farmers in Maine, uh, catfish growers uh, throughout the U.S. But then the fun one was actually shrimp and lobster um, and I, I actually had the opportunity to go out to Maine several times and work with and actually educate uh, some of the lobstermen uh, that were out in Maine. And what I really truly discovered was that they were really no different from farmers mm -hmm. and that they they had a passion for what they were doing and that giving back to what they were giving back to their to their uh, to their world, to to the fishing industry, um, and then being leaders in some of the environmental issues that they were facing. Um, and farmers are no different. Um, you know, farmers really truly are on the front lines of all of the various issues that are facing environment policy, things like that. And so that's, um, you know, that was what I really started working on when I first started here at CFFM. That's quite a journey from Southern Dairy Operations in Illinois to supporting shrimp producers in uh, in Maine. Right. I mean, at at what point uh, in that sort of early uh, time in the dairy did you realize that your aptitude was perhaps maybe less on the farming side of thing and more on the financial planning side of it? Once I graduated from my undergraduate degree, um, I. We actually started milking three times a day with me wow. being the one doing the midnight shift. <laughs> and it was at that point that I was like, you know, no, this isn't quite what I want to do. Um, and, and, you know, throughout my college, throughout my college life, I had always kind of been able to pick up on the financial issues right. a little bit more. Um, right. And then you know, I had a few people that actually asked me to tutor them. And at that point it was kind of putting it all together of, you know, I could actually make a career out of this and really being able to help producers. Uh, so those, those are the ones that really stand out. Yeah. Eric, you're, you're kind of chuckling there about the, the midnight milking. Can you kind of maybe give us some background? So I actually grew up on a dairy farm in uh, central Minnesota here or for North of Melrose. Uh, very similar to, similar to Curtis. Uh, we milk 35, 40 cows. Um, and, um, you know, growing up, we had a lot of the same same responsibility. Uh, milk cows with uh, my siblings. We only milk morning and evening. And uh, actually, we sold the dairy cattle in 96 um, mm. when I was in the, in, in the Marine Corps. And then uh, I actually transitioned it into beef. 
but uh, early on, yeah, we uh, we had a lot of responsibility as kids, and we we tended to work pretty close with mom and dad. Early on, you know, that 10, 11, 12, I, I, I hated it and despised getting up mm. in the morning. <laughs> but as I got to like that 13, 14, 15-year-old, I realized how much um, my mom and dad relied on those kids to really get the milking done, get chores done. Um, you know, and then my dad had an open-heart surgery in the, the uh, winter of 94. And so my brother and I, at age 13, 14, were running the farm. You know, he was, uh, he was laid up for quite a while, so... That was my first time where I really kind of took on a lot of responsibility at a young age and uh, kind of ingrained in my head uh, at that point that that's something that I possibly wanted to do in the future. At what point did military service come across your radar as something you were interested in? <laughs> yeah, probably uh, fifth grade. Um, I remember seeing wow. uh, a commercial. You know, the uh, the Marine commercial back in the, the, the early 90s with, uh, I just remember the one guy all in camouflage. And and from that point on, I knew that that was going to be a, a goal of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never wavered from from that point on that, that I was going to join the Marine Corps after high school. Um, you know, just to get away from the farm here, first and foremost, was where it was very important to my mom and dad. You need to get the heck out of here for a while and uh, and see what else is out there. And um, yeah, from that point on, I that was my dream, and I I really set my goals on joining the Marine Corps, coming back and t- taking over the farm at at a very early age. Did you did you leave 17, 18 years old straight to straight to boot camp? Yep, actually, a buddy of mine, uh, a few days after graduating junior high, we went down the recruiter in St. Cloud here, and told him, hey, we want to join the Marine Corps, we we want to be in the infantry. Mm-hmm. And uh, that recruiter looked at us kind of, you know, surprised. And and from that point on, so we were in the delayed entry program for about 10 months. And then, uh, yeah, we both shipped out about a week after graduation. So June 11th of 95, we, we left for boot camp. Okay. So you were already firmly in place in the Marine Corps when September 11th happened? Uh, or were yes, you out at yeah. that point? I was out at that point. Um, okay. So, um, so my four years in the Marine Corps was stationed at Camp Pendleton. Yep. Um, I got out in 99 and I joined the Marine Reserves in Fort Snelling for about six months. Um, that would have put me at about December of, of 99. Mm-hmm. And I started transitioning into purchasing the farm. Um, I had money through the GI Bill to go to um, LF Tech to, to get a law enforcement degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized pretty early on after also when I got out, transitioned into buying the farm that this was going to be difficult. You know, it's, it's always easy to, to think in your head that, well, I can make this payments, but when it really came mm. down to it, it was, uh, it was kind of a, uh, a shocker. <laughs> yeah. So, it... No, go ahead. I ended, I ended up, um, uh, started law enforcement school, like the fall of 2000. Um, and I started working part-time, some security jobs. Um, my mom and dad still had the farm here. We had some young stock, um, you know, and then I, I started transitioning into purchasing the farm. So we, uh, the farm service agency had, actually had a beginning farmers program, a beginning farmers loan. And so it took us about six, seven months to get all that paperwork in line. And um, we geared at closing September of 2001. And um, so actually that, 
that summer of 2001, I was working as a part-time police officer during the nights. And we ended up uh, closing about two weeks before September 11th. Oh, wow. So I, would, I would just start my second year of uh, law enforcement school at the program. I just closed on the farm. Um, September 11th happened, and I got a call two or three days later from a, a Marine out of, uh, it was either East Coast or West Coast, ask, asking for voluntary reenlistment. Hmm. Um, I had a couple of different MOSs while I was in the Marine Corps, and one of them that they were looking at was the military police one. And uh, I said, gosh, you know, I kind of, I said, can I think about it for a day or two? And he said, sure, and I'll call you back. And he never called me back, and I never called him back. And No kidding. So we just kind of progressed from there. At what point, Eric, did did you realize that an organization like FEC existed? Uh, and did you kind of what was your early experience like that? And ultimately, how did you you and Curtis um, and the and their program kind of come into your sphere of, uh, of understanding? So, uh, so early on, you know, when we applied for the beginning farming loan for, through the FSA, one of the requirements through FSA was to take um, farm business management classes. Okay. Um, and I had seven years, you know, from from the time from 2001 to 2008, I was supposed to graduate out of that program and uh, and seek an outside line of credit. Um, so the farm business management for myself early on was not really connected with the Farm Veteran Coalition, but I was deeply involved in the farm, you know, the farm business management side of it. And uh, that was really an eye opener for myself, um, was invaluable early on. Everything I did was pen and paper. All my, you know, my balance sheets, my, my records is all pen and paper. And it really opened my eyes to seeing my mom and dad sit at the kitchen table at tax closeout <laughs> with receipts all over the place and not really understanding. They just, did it because that's what the generation before did. That's what the generation prior to that did, you know, and the farm business management really helped me streamline everything, see what was making profit, seeing where my money was going from mm -hmm. the farm, seeing what commodities were, were making money, which ones were losing money, where I could save money. Um, you know, and really at the end of the year, um, just to have an overall view of, of what's working. Um, and tech, you know, late mid nineties to early two thousands, technology was really coming into to play both in the fields and um, just um, for myself, you know, uh, my uh, first instructor got me on the QuickBooks Pro, um, and that was just trying to streamline everything every month, put all my my bills in, um, you know, my income in, and at the end of the year, it would all be itemized out already. Um, so that uh, and I. When I graduated uh, out of the Farm Florist Agency, the Beginning Farmer uh, Program, I could I decided on myself just to keep going with the farm business management side of it. And uh, so, yeah, this is 20, 22 years that I've I've been in the program. Wow, um, it's really helped out. They're just another tool, another resource. You know, as, as far as the veteran farmers, there's there's a lot of stuff out there classes, um, seminars that that I've only found out through the FBM program and you know in my in my um, my instructor that comes to visit me. So in, uh, in 2016 and 17 as my private beef sales were ramping up, um, I actually reached out to a homegrown by heroes. Okay. 
which is which was my first you know kind of veteran type program and um they just asked you know for my proof of service and where i farmed and that was more of um you know just to help with the i suppose the labeling on mm -hmm. on the beef mm -hmm. that i could have the homegrown by heroes on there so people knew that it was coming the beef was coming from a veteran and um you know like so that's that was my first, uh, i guess aspect of using the homegrown heroes are uh, from what i understand now i don't know if they're incorporated with the farmers veterans coalition curtis help us maybe understand some of the the different agencies and programs that eric described with respect to his early uh his kind of early pathway through the farmer service agency um fbm's kind of break those down for us just fundamentally there are there are there are many uh programs and groups within the USDA who offer beginning farmer and, and veteran uh, related uh, opportunities, specifically what Eric was referring to the farm, to the farm service agency. Uh, they have several uh, programs. So uh, the beginning farmer, beginning farmer loans, uh, their first time farmer loans, what um, I think that's the, their name, but they also, I mean, not only are there loan products, but then there are, uh, through the risk management agency, there are uh, crop insurance um, programs that you can um, that you can go through that would offer some various uh, some various programs and and reduce subsidies, things like that. But then even through um, through what was the other the other group? Um, the farmer service like, agency well, or, yeah rural development um, okay. other other USDA uh, groups they actually do have programs that that will um offer money for things that are uh that beginning farmers but also veteran farmers uh are going to be going through um then you know so that's all through USDA but then the farm business management program that Eric was referring to there are actually many programs like that throughout the country uh, Minnesota is um, one of the biggest. There are 2,700 or so farms that are actually enrolled in programs like this just here in Minnesota. In other states, um, enrollment might not be quite as big. Um, and then there are there are actually states where we are trying to get programs like these started, which again, as we once we um, start talking about this virtual farm business management program. That's one of the things that we're hoping to do is to be able to extend this program in other states and okay. be able to help producers in those other states. Um, so here in Minnesota and, and Eric can, can, can speak to what he and his edu uh, what his educator actually work on, but you know, they meet four to six times a year, something like that actually, um, either on the farm or in the office, depending on the time of year. Um, and they'll work on lots of farm management topics. Um, not just, not just necessarily financially focused, but, um, tax planning, um, asset management, um, marketing in some cases with ultimately it does come back to the financials, um, you know, using, using that as kind of the, uh, the launch point for everything else, but that's really 
at its core, that's what the Minnesota and what all of these farm business management programs around the country are attempting to do is to help producers, again, understand um, their financial information and make better farm management decisions. Uh, when you meet with that representative four to six times a year, I mean, what are you guys physically looking at? What are you reviewing? What are you going over? How is it beneficial to you? Always updating the records. No. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the biggest thing is to stay updated on your records because you have a fiscally running, you know, uh, I guess my biggest thing is uh, farming is really transitioned into running like a business. My generation, you know, my, my mom and dad didn't, they just, that's what they did. That's what the generation before did, you know, and I think most successful businesses have to, including farming, you have to know where your money's going. And that's where the, the farm business management has really showed me that, you know, we don't do this for fun. And when it really comes down to it, you have to have money to pay the bills and you have, you have to be able to, you know, really somewhat be disciplined in how you spend money early on. Um, and even throughout, throughout your career as you get more comfortable and you, you, you gain more equity in, in the farm. Um, it, it just, the decisions are always the same. You still have to have enough, you know, in your bank account to pay the bills. Can you give us an example of what you learned through these types of insights that you said, oh, I probably need to adjust this practice or this expenditure based on an insight that I gained that I was previously unaware of. Yeah. So when, when, when we meet, you know, with my instructor and for us, it's usually two hours every other month. Sometimes it's an hour a month. Um, but we talk about a lot about markets um, globally. You know, we talk about what's happened, what's happening throughout the whole world and how big of uh, a part that they play in agriculture. Um, you know, early on, I, as far as, I didn't realize how much we were spending on family living. <laughs> family living. That's, that's, that's a huge one. You know, even, even now with, um, with four kids and, and a wife, it's, it's a, a crazy number that I don't think most farmers, even beginning farmers would realize how much you're really spending on your family living. Um, you know, so we, we talk about marketing our commodities with my instructor historically we you know he'll give me a five-year average a 10-year average of when the best prices are um you know and we, we talk a wide variety of um you know early, early on you know that's why I, I ended up was was copping at night for 10 years i was a police officer night for 10 years and farming during the day right and i used that money just to make improvements just um, like equipment improvements um, you know so every year we, we at the end of the year we talk about what happened you know say in 2022 and then we, we plan for the, the next year and we put that all into um, a balance sheet or, or like a 2023 crop summary so I have ready in the back of my mind what we can purchase in 2023 uh, as far as capital purchases um, you know and it it allows you to kind of, you know, and sometimes you say, no, it, it's, it's not going to work with prices right now. Um, it's not going to work to buy this piece of machinery, you know, or it's not going to work to, to buy more cattle or, or something like that, you know, and, and, and 
for the most part are it, he's pretty um you know of course we have to go off of projected right you know and weather can affect that quite a bit as far as our commodities and and stuff like that so so right now our one of our main sources of um income is that you know we sell angus cattle directly through two local butcher shops to consumers okay um so that you know in, in that aspect i we set our own price yep um we don't necessarily have to follow what's going on in the markets with that and that's more of a, a kind of a supply and demand uh we're we are still in a rural area um but we still you know set set our price kind of depending on where we've been at and where we feel is fair. Okay. As far as the commodities is, you know, we do, we sell corn also. And then we also, um, the last eight or nine years, I raised uh, seed beans. The biggest thing with the commodities, you know, we, um, so we put in all of our input costs. You know, we, we know our break even right. for our farm, for our individual farm. And, uh, and that's always huge. I think it varies a little bit for the, the size of your operation. But at, at certain points throughout the year, when the markets get above your break even, you know, if you can sell them above your break even, you're you're making money, you know, and that's where the instructors really try to push, you know, to have all that information in front of you, so you know when to sell, um, you know, you know when not to sell or to hold off a little bit. But it's always a gamble, you know. The <laughs> Um, I know my instructor always wants me to do some forward contracting, some forward, you know, mm -hmm. lock in some prices um, and stuff like that. So he, they're always, they always, he always leaves it up to myself to make that final decision, but he's always, you know, um, saying, Hey, you know, this is where things are at, you know, for fall harvest for like September, October, November, you know, I think you should probably lock some of this stuff in right now. And then it, it's ultimately up to myself, you know, if I follow through with that. Curtis, I mean, th thoughts on that. I mean, is this kind of standard par for the course stuff that you teach now, or is there some nuance you'd like to add there? You know, this is pretty standard. Um, okay. One of the one of the things, one of the tools that we have in our uh, in our toolbox is uh, the ability to do a monthly cash flow plan. And I think uh, most of the educators, I think, do work on a monthly cash flow plan with uh, with Eric, with the other producers. Um, and so with that monthly cash flow plan, you can actually see when some of those expenses are going to be due. Um, and, you know, when are when are you going to be uh, buying seed for for to put out in the field when are when are feed when are you going to have to buy hay things like that but then mm -hmm. you can also counter that with well okay this is when we're expecting to uh be able to sell um and so then we can we can do some projecting on prices um as eric was discussing and then i can make decisions based on based on good solid data um, and then be able to make those appropriate decisions and be able to adjust um, and it helps you kind of understand when you can afford to pay something, um, you know, buy a piece of equipment or even in tax planning purposes, make some prepays at the end of the year uh, so that you can do some tax planning. So absolutely. I think that's a, that's a standard practice when it comes to um, what we are, what we have in, in our tools and our toolboxes. So. 
are these are these tools and the expertise that that you all are providing to the veteran farmer available as a part of the program cost free depending on the state that they're in let's just talk about the programs that are currently in existence there are various uh prices uh just it kind of depends on the cost structure uh, in Minnesota, I think it's roughly about a two thousand dollar program, but you are uh, you're getting some college credit that goes along with it for the year. Uh, per year, yeah. Okay. Um, and then um, with this, and one of the things I actually have in my notes here is that we we have done a survey the last few years where we've kind of gathered what perceived value yeah. uh, the the uh, the students have for the program. And that actually came out to just for a beginning farmer, um, they valued the program at nine thousand dollars. So between between saving, between uh, various other things, um, they thought that that program was worth about nine thousand dollars. You know, compare that to two thousand. That's that's a still right. a pretty good return on that investment. What we are what we are doing with the virtual farm business management program, and is that we're offering this program. For a hundred dollars, um, so we would be able to do the entire um, the in the entire deal um, balance balance sheet, cash flow plan, income statement, benchmarking. Um, we're going to be we're going to be offering that for a hundred dollars um, for for this program. Eventually, we would um, when when the grant ends on this, the price would go up a little bit, but. Um, we we really do believe in this program. We want to make this available to people in other states, um, and and in particular for veterans, because again, we we want this program to be of use to veterans, and we know that that value, as Eric has described, is there. So how can we encourage people to get involved? So that's a, that's a hundred dollars for the year, for, for the year, four to six virtual events or courses throughout the year. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And that's only available to veterans through Farmer Veteran Coalition? That's correct. Exactly. Okay. We're we're working with uh, the Farmer Veteran Coalition to offer this uh, this opportunity to members of the Farmer Veteran Coalition um, to be able to do this program. Can, can guys like Eric, who have participated in sort of the grandfather one, transition into the lower cost one for the next year or for the availability of the funds through the grant? Well, really what we're looking for is we're looking for states where programs don't like this don't exist. Don't exist. So okay. Um, okay. in Minnesota, obviously we have two very strong programs. Uh, so, you know, originally our ideas were going to be Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, where the Farmer Veteran Coalition has a very strong um, membership, but in states that are not, uh, that don't have programs like this, that is, that's where we're going to be offering this. Erica, if I'm correct in what you had said earlier, you've been a part of this kind of cumulative system for, you know, a, a couple of decades now. Uh, would you agree in the sort of value of what you're paying for versus what you get, uh, and, and if so, are there things that um, you'd like to see added to the program that you think would be beneficial specifically to transitioning veterans? Are there things that you've really found beneficial that you'd want to sustain going forward? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll 
So last year in 2022 through um, Alec Tech, I paid uh, $1,435 for the farm business management. Okay. That's what I paid. And I don't know the credits that that comes down to, but that's meeting with instructor about two hours um, every other month. Sometimes it's one hour a month. Uh, you know, coming up here, there's actually a, a QuickBooks Pro um, class that uh, Alec Tech is putting on. Um, you know, and a lot of those, I've never paid out of pocket for a lot of those um, session, those sessions. It's up to the individual person, of course, to drive there um, and stuff. Um, you know, as in, I'm almost positive the first 10 years I used my GI Bill because I have I had 10 years from uh. 99 um, to pay for, to pay for um, like 10 years. Cause I know, I, I know I used it for my law enforcement program for the two years. And then I used, I had eight years or seven years at that point to use up my GI bill for, um, and I'm pretty sure as long as it's an accredited program, you can use your GI bill. Now that's some of that stuff has maybe changed. I don't know. And I, it might be different per college or per you know, state university that's, that's putting the classes on as well. Um, as far as the benefit, I it's to me it's huge. You know, the last five five ten years now, we've kind of looked at early on hiring a financial advisor, just mm -hmm. because there was so much stuff. Um, I've been really fortunate to be able to make to grow over the last twenty one years of farming, but the Alec Tech program in my mind is is almost like paying a financial advisor throughout the whole year. Curtis, can you can you confirm whether or not the GI Bill is available for use uh, to pay for some of these programs? Yeah, depending on depending on where um, the state and, and the, the different rules that the states have, I mean, the GI Bill could potentially be used. That would be a better question for um, whoever, uh, whichever organization that they would be uh, uh, working with. This this question comes up, I think, pretty regularly when uh, I'm talking to veterans who are thinking about getting out and they want to go into agriculture, specifically production agriculture, be it be it plant or animal. And the the going in assumption is that I need to buy a farm in order to become a farmer. Curtis, how do you approach advising veterans that are considering coming into agriculture? Do I need to buy first, or should I lease, or should I rent, or how how do how do you advise approaching that situation? Well, so I'm a I'm I'm an economist by training, so my <laughs> my natural uh, phrase is it depends, um, <laughs> but it really I mean it really does depend on the situation. Like in Eric's uh, circumstance, it 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 makes more sense to to be going back in. Um, and and transitioning the farm that way. But if you don't have a familiar a familial re relationship where you are able to go back into that, um, I you know, I the way that I would say is to start looking at programs where there might be an apprenticeship. Um, I I know here in Minnesota in Wisconsin, I believe is where it started, but it, it's here in Minnesota as well. There is the dairy grazing apprenticeship program. So if you're interested in going into a grazing dairy, that's a great opportunity. And then they will uh, help connect farmers who might be transitioning out. Depending on your state, they could also have some um, some programs where there are some land access 
uh, programs that are out there. Here in Minnesota, I believe we also have a program uh, through the legislature, if I remember correctly, where they are um, trying to connect farmers with um, beginning farmers, not necessarily just veterans, but beginning farmers. And there's actually some tax benefits that go along with it. Um, so it just kind of depends on on the state and the situation that's going on. But, you know, farming, getting into farming can be very expensive, but it doesn't have to be. Um, it can be, you know, you can, I, if it were me, I would be looking at where can I rent um, and where can I get in with a farmer who is looking at retirement and doesn't necessarily mm. have someone to pass the farm on to. And you don't have to go in and buy the farm and you're just getting started. If you don't, if you don't have any experience with agriculture, I would start with doing an, an apprenticeship program or getting in yeah. with a farmer who can really kind of show you the ropes. Yeah. It's such a strong point and, and a candid one, I think, because often the perception is, you know, like anything in the military, I've got to become knee deep in it in order for, for me to get good at it and learn it. But that might not always need to be the case here in this exactly. application. I mean, Eric, in hindsight, um, do you think that was the right decision for you or would you have perhaps pursued you know, maybe a rent first or looked at uh, you know a different piece of land instead? Yeah, I think in most parts of the country, farmland or getting into farming is, is has become really expensive. Um, Luckily enough, when, when I bought the farm from my mom and dad, they understood the cost of it. That There's no way I'd be able to just buy it outright, you know, and be able to, to afford that. So I slowly worked my way into it. You know, and that's where the working at night for 10 years full time. <laughs> I worked at night 10 years full time yeah. just to pay the bills, you know, and uh, veterans, as veterans, we have that drive. A lot of people have the drive to do that. I know as veterans, we have that discipline. You want to succeed. Um you know, you just have the, the willpower to do that. Uh, like Curtis mentioned, I, I, I can think of eight, nine dairy farms in the area that are looking for help, you know, and sometimes I still think as a, as a veteran, or someone that wants to get into farming, you know, go work for a farmer for a year or two and see if that's what you really want. Um, I think a lot of people have this idea in their head that <laughs> it's glamour and glorious. Um, but when it really comes down to it, it might not be the lifestyle that, that they want. You know, they're, uh, the, since COVID, there's a lot of niche, niche farmers, the vegetable, the smaller, like um, even the egg, egg producers in this area, um, you know, some of the, the, the beef guys that have really been able to make a living, and they all have 10, 15 acres. Right. You, know, you don't need to have hundreds and hundreds of acres to be considered a farmer. Um, and I, uh, a couple of the other pages that I follow uh, around the metro area, there's farms on there that are doing really, really well, just on a small amount of land. Right. But they're they're able to market their produce, you know, through farmers markets and uh, direct to consumer. Um, some of them just have stand um, or like a little uh, shop set up. Um, you know, as long as you're following the, the regulations and stuff, some of them done have done really well. Curtis, I'm wondering, you know, as you as you you kind of talk through veterans in these programs, uh, how are you communicating to them methods by which to find their niche 
in that market, whether it's value added processing, whether it's, you know, a protein that doesn't exist uh, locally in that area, or whether it's a, a certain produce that doesn't exist uh, or is in short supply. How are you talking to them about where do I find my niche and what should I start with first in, in where I am geographically? Right. Uh, so specifically to what we do here at the center, um, you know, being the USDA beginning farmer clearinghouse, we have a, a website called farmanswers.org. Um, that is, you know, it's got lots of resources for helping people find resources on, on those types of topics. Uh, we have some specific toolboxes that are there to help people, again, identify, um, you know, business plans and things like that. Um, but then, you know, when it comes to like the actual like the, the education that goes around it, as we, as I work with other educators around the country, um, they're working on specific things. Um, you know, they, they've, they have their, their, um, their products that they tend to work with, whether it's fruit and vegetable or, you know, various other, uh, things like that. But ultimately, um, when we work with producers, to help them find this information. We're just helping them kind of understand what the market trends are, um, you know, and, and understand, you know, specifically, again, thinking about the Twin Cities, thinking about the, um, the, the various cultures that call the Twin Cities home. Um, and, or, uh, you know, what are the needs that they have? Uh, do, are they in need of halal meat or are they in the need uh, in need of a specific type of vegetable, just helping them understand what, um, what the trends of the market are. And then seeing if there's something that really resonates with, uh, with the producers that, that are, that they're wanting to come in and, and offer. Eric, what was that thought process like for you as you made the decision to transition into beef from dairy? Was there a market condition or a demand within your sector that you said, that's where I need to be? Yeah, I, I knew after I got the marine fire, I did not want to milk cows again. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fair enough. Yeah, but we, you know, we had some mar we had some marginal marginal land that wasn't farmable, but is definitely worth pasturing. Um, you know, and I kind of saw uh, a demand early on for beef. Um, you know, the quarter, half, and whole, and that's kind of what I stuck with. So they, not necessarily that there was a, a demand, but as far as for the Angus beef, most of the beef in this area is all Holstein. Uh -huh. um, and so that was that was my initial, like, hey, I, I actually raised Angus beef. Um, and the Angus Association did an amazing job over the last how many years of, of marketing their beef. You know, I think early on Hardy's had the, the Angus burger. And so that resonated with a lot of people. And so early on in 2001, that's what I kind of used is Ang Angus beef. Um, and then I just kind of grew clientele up from there. A lot of repeat customers. Um, early on, I didn't do much for marketing, but law enforcement community is very particular about who they get their meat from <laughs> and a lot of them like to, to grill you know smoke and um you know the smoke and the brisket and stuff and so that was a lot of my clientele early on they trusted me i worked with them and then it just kind of spread from there um i didn't do much advertising until 2010 
Um, and then even at that point, it was just on Facebook. And uh, there was a local uh, graphic sign in Nurls that I had to make me a, I suppose it's like a three by four foot sign that just says Angus B for sale. And that exploded. Um, you know, so we only sell on like five, 10 a year. Um, to last year, we sold roughly about, oh, like 65 head a year. Wow. So we sell about five, six a month is what we try to do. Um, and a lot of it is just, you know, word of mouth, repeat customers. Um, and then my, my sign at the end of the road. Is there anything that we haven't talked about or we haven't covered Curtis first and then Eric that you feel like we should have or any you know last minute parting thoughts or lessons learned for, for the listeners? Yeah, you know, specifically thinking about, again, this virtual farm business management program, there, there are um, what we're really looking for is for people who are in production, um, again, a year or two in production so that we can really kind of take the, the data that's there and make that, make that data pop and really kind of help under, uh, help people understand that. If you're not at that point though, um, and you're, you know, just thinking about getting started or, you know, you're maybe you're just really new into this. There are lots of great resources that are out there. Uh, you can still get involved with these programs. Um, but, you know, the information may be a little bit more um, abstract, if you will. Uh, but, you know, farmanswers.org, the Farmer Veteran Coalition, these are great places to get involved um, when, with trying to find information uh, on getting started, continuing your, oper your operation, making it better. Um, and ultimately, um, what we're wanting to do is just help producers understand their financials to be able to live out their farming dream yeah. as it is. Yeah. I appreciate that, Chris. Eric. A lot of times I think when, especially the veterans coming out there for myself, I was looking for a path, looking for a way, you know, there, there's always, um, I know I wanted to buy the farm, but how am I going to do it? You know, and same with the veterans coming out. I, I, I honestly think if they, are not from a rural area to maybe move to a more rural area if that's if if, if agriculture is something they really want to do, and then you have vast vast differences. You know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, huge dairy area. You know, you get to the Dakotas, Wyoming. You know, it's more ranching and you know, big big uh, croplands out there. If they have that ability to move to one of those more rural areas, and just get themselves involved, like Curtis mentioned earlier, with with a farmer, either. Um, I can look at our local uh, uh, farm paper and there's always farmers in there looking for help. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag Podcast, brought to you by Farmer Veteran Coalition. In talking with Curtis and Eric, I was reminded of how little I knew about business when I transitioned from the Marines. It's just not a skill set that's practiced regularly. It's clear, however, that Curtis has a natural aptitude for economics and a desire to help farmers achieve their goals through better financial insights. While Eric's dogged service as a police officer at night for 10 years to pay the bills while taking over his family farm demonstrates a passion for this profession. This podcast series has always been about bringing together profession and passion in a way that helps transitioning veterans find purpose again in agriculture. Highlighting programs like CFFM's Farm Business Management Programs 
coupled with sharing Eric's two decades of farming experience, are exactly the type of joint message we're trying to promote with the Vets and Ag podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters who benefit from these insights and stories, please leave us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. I'm your host, Mike DeSau, and until next time, stay frosty. Thank you.